0: good morning college park like joe said i totally agree that this is a great church in which to get trained and to get experience you guys have been very loving and welcoming to my wife emily and i and so even before we jump in i just want to say thank you for the privilege of getting to serve here and for you just welcoming us with open arms it's been a joy to be here and now it's an even greater joy for me to get to open up god's word with you this morning so before we do that would you pray with me Father, it is not only a joyful thing, it's a weighty thing when we open up the words that you spoke. And so I pray that as we hear this word, Lord, we're coming in with a lot of different things on our minds. Things from Christmas, things from work, things from family. And I just pray that you would meet people where they're at. Or one sermon cannot possibly touch on all the issues that walk through those doors this morning. And yet I'm trusting that as we open your word And see what's there, that your spirit will guide what I say to meet people exactly with what they need to hear. And Father, I pray that as we talk about this home that Isaiah paints a picture of, I pray that it would just add a new sense of longing for us that from now on, whenever we pray your kingdom come, we would know that we're praying for our kingdom home. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we start, I have a question. It's probably a question you've gotten before, and it's simple. It's, where is home for you? Now, before you just write it off, think an easy question, let me explain why it's a little more complicated. See, like some of you, about a week ago, I went home for Christmas to see my family, right? And then a few days later, though, my wife and I packed up our car, drove a few more hours to go home to see her family. And then after a few days there, we came home to Indianapolis where we live. So they got me, where is home? So is home where you grew up? Or is home where you get your mail? Is home wherever your family is? Or is home where the heart is? Is it a building? Is it a neighborhood? Is it a people? Or is it just a concept? Where is home. Now, I think there's actually a little bit of all of those kind of wrapped up into what makes home, home. And when I think about home, I think of it in three categories. I think it involves place, people, and preparation. Here's what I mean. I think that home, it actually is a place. It's not just some concept or warm feeling. I think it's an actual geographical place where you can say, I'm home, And now I'm not home. I'm home, not home. It's a real place. But I also think that home is people. And you know that when you're home, when you feel at home, you're with your people, right? You're with people that they get you and you get them. You share the same stories, the same loves, the same joys. When you're home, those are your people, But it's not just people and place i think it actually involves preparation what i mean is that both of those both the place and the people i think were prepared for you and you were prepared for them there's something about that place when you're home that just feels like you were made for that place you you get the way it works and you just love all the little quirks about it it's just it's you and it's the same with those people, right? You just, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you just belong together. There's just something that even though you may actually be really different, you can tell these are my people. This is where I belong. This is home. So if that's what home is, if it's if it's a place and people in preparation, let me ask again, where is home for you? Now I bring this up because this morning, as we wrap up our series in Isaiah 11, Isaiah is going to help us answer that question by focusing on our true home that we see in verses 6 to 10. In those verses, he paints a picture of the kingdom home that all of us are looking for, whether you realize it or not. And when we look at this picture of home, what I want us to see is that we're actually tapping into a deeper storyline that runs front to back throughout your whole Bible's and throughout all of human history. And that story is the story of God's people looking for home. Here's what I mean. When you open your Bibles to Genesis, just after creation, what's the first thing you find? You find mankind at home. And home is this garden paradise. It's beautiful. Everything is good. There's fellowship with God and with man and all of creation's in harmony, right? But It doesn't last. And before long, we're kicked out of our garden home and we become exiles and aliens. Now fast forward to Genesis 12, and there we find that God calls a man named Abram. He says, Abram, I want you to leave where you are and then go to the homeland that I'm going to show you. He promised a home. Now after God's people end up in slavery in Egypt, which is not home-like, God sends Moses, a deliverer, so that they can go to this promised land, to the home that God has been promising them. But there's kind of this pattern, right, that as soon as God's people get home, we don't usually do well there. And so, once again, God's people rebel against him, and so they get kicked out of home and sent into exile. And then the whole rest of your Old Testament is that story. It's the story of God's people looking for and longing for their true home i mean the prophets speak of it in passages like the one we're going to look at today just describing this home that is beyond all imagination and then when you flip over to the new testament they pick up this exact same idea and they they talk about us as as sojourners and strangers people who are longing for home in fact to sum it up Listen to Hebrews 11. This is kind of, this is us. This is our story. It says, They acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak that way make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So that's the story of the Bible, and that's the story we find ourselves in. We are longing for a better country. We are longing for home. But if you're here and you think, that's great if you're one of those Bible people, but this is actually bigger than just the Bible, right? I mean, longing for home is so woven into the fabric of what it means to be human. Think about when you were a little kid think about when you went to your first sleepover and got really scared right where did you want to go i just want to go home okay or what if fast forward now you're an adult you're you're well beyond that right well now you're stuck in traffic on a friday evening and you're exasperated what do you say i just want to get home i mean this is all over our culture right Everywhere from Dorothy and her little ruby red slippers reminding us, there's no place like home, all the way to Bing Crosby, making sure we know I'll be home for Christmas. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the biggest one. <laughs> Even bigger <laughs> Two words: LeBron James. So this last year, LeBron left Miami to go back to Cleveland. And do you remember what the headline-grabbing announcement was? I'm coming home. So that's our story. That's the story of our culture, is we are longing for home. Now you may be wondering, why in the world is he bringing this up? I'm reminding us that this morning, as we look at Isaiah 11, we're not just talking about some kingdom out there, some fairy tale. Friends, we're talking about home. So I invite you, as we look at the text this morning, remember that we are looking at our kingdom home. Now we're going to look at this text in three parts. So if you're taking notes, these would be the three main ideas. First, in verses 6 to 8, we're going to look at three qualities of the kingdom. Then in verse 9, we'll see the core of the kingdom And finally, we'll wrap up in verse 10 with the call of the king. So first, what is this kingdom like? What's home going to be like for God's people? In verses 6 to 8, we're going to see three things. We're going to see in verse 6 that it's a peaceful kingdom. In verse 7, it's a transformed kingdom. And then in verse 8, it's a curse-free kingdom. So let's look at each of those briefly. The first thing you see in verse 6 is that our home will be a peaceful kingdom. Read verse 6 with me. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, you don't have to be a zoology major to know that that's not normal, right? I mean, just to make sure, you guys know that wolves eat lambs. Lions eat calves. So clearly there's something remarkable going on here if the wolf is dwelling with the lamb instead of devouring the lamb. Now before we unpack why that is, I need to mention that there is a question in these passages about how we should take these animals. Some people say, should we take them literally to refer to how these animals will relate to one another? Or should we take them more symbolically to refer to how people will interact with one another? And after studying this text and others, my conclusion is, yes. I don't see any reason to choose one over the other. So in verse 6, will these animals actually get along and live beside one another in harmony? Yeah, I think so. But I also think there's a whole lot more going on here than just some kind of end times version of animal planet, right? I mean, in verse 6, what are these relationships marked by? They're marked by violence, hostility, and enmity. Kind of sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? I mean, ever since we left home in the garden, human relationships have been marked by these things. After we were kicked out of the garden, you don't even need to turn the page in your Bible until you come across the first murder. Have you ever thought about that? And that's the way it's been ever since. The strong preying on the weak The violent, terrorizing the vulnerable, fear, hatred, and enmity. And you know that, right? If you just turn on the news. All you'll see on the news is story after story of violence. From Ferguson to New York. From ISIS to Al-Shabaab. Our world is marked by violence and hostility. Which begs the question... How in the world can Isaiah envision a kingdom that's marked by peace and not by violence? Well, here's how. Because Isaiah envisioned Christmas. What I mean is he envisioned a coming king who would bring peace. Now, in Micah 5, you all know that we're told about a ruler who would come from Bethlehem. Well, listen to what it says there about that ruler. It says, His people shall dwell secure." For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The one coming from Bethlehem will bring peace. And Isaiah will tell us later that when this prince of peace comes, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the world will no longer be marked by this hostility and violence, but instead our world will be marked by peace. But now we have to answer the question, how? How did Jesus bring about that peace? How did Jesus transform hostility into harmony? And here's what we see. It wasn't by inflicting violence, but by enduring violence. Isaiah 53 says that upon him, that is, upon Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And Hebrews twelve says it this way it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So what that means is that Jesus ended hostility by enduring hostility in our place. He endured the violence of the cross so that you and I can enjoy the peace of the kingdom. Isn't that good news? Now, like many of the Bible's promises, this is true both now and not yet, right? There's some ways it's already started, but it's not fully here. See, on one level, this is already true in the church. Jesus has already done his peacemaking work in his people. Listen to Ephesians 2. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, there are things that the world says should create hostility amongst people in the church. And it's always been that way. Jew versus Gentile. White versus black. Rich versus poor. But Ephesians says, Jesus tore down those dividing walls. They're not there anymore. And he did this, it says, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that language. Jesus killed hostility by being hostily killed in our place so that what will one day be true of all relationships in this kingdom home is right now true of relationships in the church. Hostility has been killed. So when people look in and they see peace in the church, what they're seeing is a little sneak peek of Isaiah 11. So what should that mean for us today, though? Well, I think it means that as citizens of this peaceful kingdom home, we should live lives that make peace and that are marked by peace. Because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? So when you and I see conflict, our knee-jerk response should be, how can I make peace? not how can I get involved and how can I tell him what she said, our knee-jerk reaction should be peacemakers. If you are a citizen of this peaceful kingdom, my admonition to you this morning is stop making trouble and start making peace. Romans 12 tells us that if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So this morning, my question is, Are you living peaceably with all? Or is there someone that just popped into your mind when I asked that, that you know there's violence, there's hostility? could be physical, it could just be verbal. But is there someone to which you show hostility? If so, I'm asking you to repent, because this is not fitting for citizens of the peaceful kingdom. Friends, we know that the best this world is going to offer us is merely toleration or a ceasefire. These superficial, temporary breaks in the violence. This world can't offer us true peace. But, on the other hand, Jesus' kingdom is one of complete, never-ending peace. Friends, when we get home, there will be no more racial violence. There will be no more ISIS. There will be no more assaults. There will be no more murder, no more rape, no more genocide. You won't even need your house keys. Do you realize that? Do you you guys know what this is? You think it's a piece of metal that's called a key. It's not. This is a kingdom reminder. And it's reminding you of two things. It's reminding you, one, we're not home yet. That key unlocks a door, whether to your apartment or your house, but that's not home. The second thing, it reminds you that when we get home, you won't need those because home is a peaceful kingdom. Okay, so that's the first thing that we see about the kingdom. And the second thing is that home is a transformed kingdom. Look at 7. It says, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So again, we see, that we see this piece of the kingdom, right? But there's also something more happening here. See, not only will the bear and the lion not eat other animals, they're actually changed to eat something else altogether. They are fundamentally transformed. Their very natures will change. Now this morning, if I had to guess, I would say this idea of transformation and change is one that a lot of us connect with. In fact i bet all of us here would say there's some way that we want to see change in our life now for those more ambitious of you you're probably going to do something about it next week around thursday you're probably going to resolve and i just want to go on record as saying i think this is the year you're going to keep it i know every other year was a fluke 2015 is your year people you laugh And yet we all know that we long for change. In fact, last year alone, did you know that we spent $10 billion on the self-help industry? Why would we do that? The answer is that we long for transformation. But friends, the sad reality is that the change this world offers is superficial and temporary. It can't go deep enough and it won't last long enough. On the other hand, our kingdom home is marked by deep, radical transformation. In fact, our king has promised to make all things new. But how, how, how could he do that? How can he bring that transformation about? Here's the amazing thing. The king was transformed so that we might be transformed. What do I mean? I mean what we celebrate at Advent. See, in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, he took on the form of man. What that means is that he was transformed. So when you celebrate that baby in a manger, what you're actually celebrating is the most awesome transformation that has ever occurred. God became a man. That should just blow your mind. But then it gets gets even more unbelievable, right? Because Jesus was transformed in one other way. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What that means is that when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't just bear your sin, he became sin in your place. And why? So that we might become The righteousness of God. He became so we might become. He was transformed so we could be transformed. And friends, do you realize this has already started? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You've been given a new heart with new desires to love the Lord. But you haven't just been transformed Right now, you are being transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Did you catch that? Beholding, we are being transformed. So if you're wondering, how how do I get transformed? There's your answer. By fixing your eyes on Christ and his glory. Friends, I need to tell you this morning that if you want transformation, it won't come through just looking at yourself or looking at your problems or looking at your circumstances. If you want change, the only way you'll be changed is by looking at your king. He is the one who gives us transformation. But here's the best part. This transformation has already started, right? But it's only started. It's going to get so much better. In fact, listen to 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has yet to appear. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will actually be transformed to be like Jesus because we actually see Jesus. So because of this, because of the king, we look forward to a home that's not only peaceful, but transformed. And that brings us to the third quality of our kingdom home. We've seen that it's peaceful. We've seen that it's transformed. And now in verse 8, we see that it's a curse-free kingdom. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Okay, now on one level, this verse simply continues the picture of no more violence that we've seen, right? In fact, now it's kind of ratcheting it up, saying, look, even these most vulnerable little kids, they don't need to be afraid to play with these deadly snakes. And that's awesome. But there's something way more awesome going on here. Think back a second to the Garden of Eden, right? beautiful, all creation in harmony with one another, no fear. How did that go wrong? It was a snake, right? Once Adam and Eve listened to the temptation of the serpent and disobeyed God, both they and the serpent, the snake, were cursed. And listen to how God cursed that snake. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So part of the curse of the garden is that there would be this ongoing battle between the child of the woman and the child of the serpent. And we see this all over the Bible. In fact, if you leap forward to Revelation chapter 12, almost near the end, you're going to find two figures. You're going to find a woman, and you're going to find a dragon. Now in the chapter 12, what happens is this woman has a child, and the dragon tries to eat this child. This child, who, by the way, just happens to mention will be ruler of all the nations. Now, once this child is not eaten, the dragon gets mad and says, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on her children, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting. Guess what they call this dragon in chapter 12? they call it a serpent it says that great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan so the dragon in revelation 12 is the serpent in genesis all in between there's this ongoing battle between the child of the woman and the child of the serpent that's part of the curse but you know all too well that that's not the whole curse right See, the curse affected everything. All of creation was broken. Relationships stopped working. Our work became labor. And our labor and childbirth became painful. Everything was broken. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that creation was subjected to futility, meaning it stopped working the way that it's supposed to. Not only that, it's been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is just crying out, when will this curse be gone? But you also know that it's not just creation out there. It's not just trees and birds. It's you and it's me. See, every single one of us were born part of this cursed family of Adam. And every single day... We prove our family resemblance to our father by our own sinful rebellion against God. And the law says that the penalty for this curse is death. So we have to ask the question, well, how do we get free from this curse? What is our hope? The answer, again, is Christmas. See, Galatians says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his woman, sent forth his son, born of a woman and then it tells us what this son did it says Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us that's the gospel in fact Jesus' death on the cross is what makes this verse in Isaiah 11:8 possible he's the offspring of the woman who crushed the head of the snake and ended the curse for us so that in the kingdom home kids can play with snakes and there's no fear of harm because the curse is gone But as good as that truth is, we know that we still live in a cursed world, right? We feel that every day. And yet, what I want to remind you of this morning, friends, is that those in Christ already experience Jesus' curse-defeating work. Think with me a moment. What is the opposite of curse? Bless, right? Or blessing. So what would it look like to have no more curse? It would mean to have nothing but blessing Ephesians 1 God tells us that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and in Romans 8:28 we know that for those who love God all things work together for good all good all blessing no curse so christian what i want to remind you this morning is that nothing nothing that comes into your life is a curse Your king gives you nothing but blessing. Now that doesn't mean it will always be easy, but that means none of it's a curse. And one day when we do get home, even that will be gone. There will be no curse. Revelation 22.3 describes home by saying, no longer will there be anything accursed. All of creation will work just the way it's supposed to. Nothing corrupt." nothing subjected to futility, nothing cursed. So friends, take heart. The good news is is that the king who came came to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Okay, so that's a brief picture of what home's going to be like, right? But now we see in verse 9, we answer the question, why? Why will our home be that way? And what we see there is that there's something at the very core of the kingdom that shapes all of our life in it. So what is it? What is this core of the kingdom? Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So after that first part summarizes verses 6 to 8, saying they won't hurt, they won't destroy. The second part unlocks the reason why. It says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So why is the kingdom peaceful? Why is it transformed and free from the curse? Because it's full of the knowledge of the Lord. Everyone in the kingdom knows the king. Now, we need to be careful here. Because when this says knowledge of the Lord, it doesn't mean knowledge about the Lord. And you guys all know the difference, right? Does anybody in here have a Facebook friend that, if you're honest, you don't really know? Maybe one or two dozen. I think all of us probably do. So what's happening when we do that? There's somebody who we're saying, this is my friend, even though I don't really know them. Now, you can know a lot about that person. I mean, if you check Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, you can gather a lot of information about someone. But that doesn't mean you know them. But my fear is that a lot of us go through life treating God the same way. We sort of Facebook friend him. That is, we, we claim to be connected to him, but we don't really know him. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, you may like all the pictures that he posts. I mean, creation is kind of God's personal Instagram, right? You may even like a lot of the things he says, as long as they're short enough and non-convicting enough to fit in a tweet or on a piece of art in our home. In fact, you may even like hanging out with other people who do really know him, kind of like a spiritual LinkedIn. I don't know him, but I know him who knows him. (laughs) Friends, we can do all that. We can come to church. We can listen to sermons, read our Bibles. That doesn't mean that we have knowledge of the Lord. The knowledge that Isaiah is talking about here is personal it's intimate and relational it means that you actually know the lord so isaiah is saying here that the earth will actually be full of that knowledge that's what makes our kingdom home the way it is but how do how do we get it how do we get this knowledge of the lord the only way that we can know god is if god makes himself known to us right that's again what we celebrated at christmas god making himself known by sending jesus the image of the invisible god in fact jesus said no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him and in john 1 it says that no one has ever seen god but the only god who's at the father's side he has made him known so if you want to know god if you want this knowledge of the lord You need to know Jesus. And Isaiah is saying that one day this is going to be true of everyone in our kingdom home. Can you imagine? Everyone knows the Lord. This is just what God promised in the new covenant when he said, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So Isaiah 11 is simply that new covenant coming to reality. But again, it's going to get even better. Paul said that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then, when I get home, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So my application to us this morning on this is make knowing the Lord your primary focus in life. There is nothing more important There's nothing more valuable than knowing the Lord. That's why we say with Paul, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So if you're wondering, that sounds great, but how can I do that? Just a couple quick suggestions. As the new year starts, find a Bible reading plan. Make a specific plan. Name a time and a place where you're going to spend time with the Lord and his word. Not only that, talk to him. Pray. You would never think that you could get to know someone else in here without talking to them. And our God is a personal God. So you're not going to get to know him if you don't talk to him. So make 2015 the year that you get to know the Lord. And finally, that brings us to verse 10 and our last point. The call of the king. Read verse 10 with me. In that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So here we come back full circle to where Pastor Mark started this series, right? In verse one, this root of Jesse, this king who was promised, who is empowered by the Spirit, and who judges with righteousness. And here, when we see this king, what is he doing? He's standing as a signal. So now we gotta ask, what does that mean? Well in the Old Testament, this idea of standing as a signal is usually used in passages talking about the military. And the idea was that there was this signal or this banner that would be raised and it would tell the army where to assemble. They knew, oh, there's the signal, let's go there. It was used to, to gather people as a as a rallying point or a meeting place. But there was also one other use of this word in the Old Testament that I think really influences the way we read this passage. See, back in Numbers 21, Israel was wandering through the wilderness, and they began to grumble. They began to grumble against God who had brought them there. And so God sent fiery serpents interesting that He sent snakes sent fiery serpents among them and began to bite them, and Israelites became sick and died. Now, when Israel finally woke up and said, what have we done? And they confessed their sin to God. He gave them the answer. And he said this. He said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, which is the same word as our word signal in our passage. So make a fiery serpent, set it on a signal pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Okay, now that's a cool story, right? What does that have to do with the root of Jesse? Listen to Jesus in John 3. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes may have eternal life. So, just in case you missed it, do you see the connection that Jesus is drawing here? Jesus is saying, just like the Israelites were bitten by these poisonous snakes and they had to look to the one on the signal pole, To see him and live. In the same way, you and I have been snake bitten by sin. And we need to look to the one on the signal pole if we want to live. So Jesus is saying, if you want to live, you have to look and see me, the root of Jesse, the king who's standing as a signal. And as we look at that king, do you know what the king's doing? As he stands there, he's gathering his people to the kingdom. That is, he's calling his people home. And do you see who he's calling home? Look there, it says, the peoples and all nations. See, Jesus isn't the king of a nation. Jesus is the king of all nations. And this king is calling his people home from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation which is just what he promised when he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The king has been lifted up, and now he stands as a signal to all peoples and all nations, saying, come home. Look to me, the one on the pole, and live. And finally, notice where he's calling these people's home to. It says his glorious place of rest or his resting place. Now that phrase carries two ideas. First, it, it references the place where the king himself rests. That is, where he lives, right? So what that means is the king is standing as a signal, calling us home to where he is. Did you know that Jesus prayed for that exact thing right before he was arrested? In John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I pray that those who, Whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Isn't that awesome? If that wasn't good enough for you, though, there's another way this resting place idea can be taken. It can also refer to the place where the rest he offers is found. And that's actually how the Bible talked about the promised land, this home that God had promised his people. It would use that phrase resting place to describe our home the place where we can enjoy the rest that the king provides. So in conclusion this morning, friends, if you are here today and you're tired, if you're tired of trying to be good enough, if you're tired of running away, if you're just tired of looking for home, I have good news for you. Your king is is standing as a signal, calling to you. Jesus is standing saying, Come home. Come home to the kingdom. Come home to my peaceful, transformed, and curse-free kingdom. Come know the king who came that first Christmas. The king who died and rose again to buy your entrance to his kingdom the king who ascended to go and prepare a place for you. The king who is coming again to take you home to be with him. Friends, the message of Isaiah eleven six 6 to 10 is that this future home should give us present hope. So in a world that's still violent, it's still needing transformation, and it's still under a curse, in this world, You will have trouble, but take heart. Your king has overcome the world. Your king is standing. And so this morning I invite you, see your king, the root of Jesse, standing as a signal saying, come, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And in Isaiah 11, see your king standing, calling to you, come home. Come home. Let me pray. Father, I praise you that you have prepared a place for your people. Father, no eye has seen nor ear heard what the Lord has prepared for those who are going there. Father, I pray that you would use the truth of Isaiah 11, that you would drive it deep into our hearts and that you would create insatiable longing for a home, that no place here would fully satisfy and that we would be those who consider ourselves sojourners and strangers on the earth looking for a homeland, a heavenly country whose builder and designer is God. God, Father, thank you for the hope that this passage gives us, the things that you are already doing. And I pray that we would not be discouraged by the fact that they're not yet fully here. Instead, that you would help us to hold on and to press forward with our eyes fixed, waiting for the day when we see our King standing, calling us into our home, saying, welcome. It's in his mighty name I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Dan, thank you. God bless you. Afterward, there'll be some folks up here who would love to pray with you. If you fit that sort of longing for home paradigm, whether it's a sense of brokenness or some sort of challenge in your life, or you have more questions about the things that Dan has talked about, there'll be some folks here who would love to pray with you. As Dan was wrapping up, a text of Scripture came to mind in Revelation 21. I want to leave you with this today. Let this be the mindset as you go into the world and scatter and be the best means of evangelism that we have in our community, of people who live in a world that isn't their home, who can then proclaim the gospel and deal with brokenness and pain. Revelation 21 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Hmm. Even so, Lord, come. God bless you, College Park. Thanks for coming today. love you. Have a great day.